Welcome to Ex Libris, the podcast that, with the help of the greatest writers around, champions libraries and bookshops. These are our society's safe spaces, particularly libraries. They are palaces for the people, free of charge, where everyone is welcome and nobody judged. Yet they are in peril and closing like never before. My name's Ben Holden. I'm a writer and producer and, more to the point, fed up of this state of affairs. So, during each episode of Ex Libris, I will be meeting a great author at a library or an independent bookshop of their choice, somewhere that has become resonant for them. And, I hope, after you listen to this episode, we'll feel special to you too. Today we're in South Parade, a leafy side street in Summertown, Oxford. Nestled here beside a surgery, down the way from an art centre and up a bit from an inviting little row of shops, is a neighbourhood library. It's bright and shiny, full of light as well as books, and opens onto a glorious, peaceful garden. I'm here to meet Bart Van Ness, a professor of English literature at the university, and also this year's winner of the Costa Award for Book of the Year, for The Cutout Girl, which I have no hesitation in calling a masterpiece. Not a word I often use. Joining the conversation alongside Bart is Kate McLeod. Kate is Assistant Director of Cultural Services for Oxford County Council. Her remit under that banner includes not only the region's libraries, but also museums, archives, music, even registration and coroners. Thank you both very, very much for joining us here in Summertown Library. Bart, can I ask why here? Why did you choose Summertown? It's a beautiful local community library, but why this place? Well, this is just my local library. You know, it's about five minutes down the road from me. It's where I took my kids to, you know, get that week's set of children's books. And then quite recently, I actually also had an event here where I read from my book and talked about it. And the place was absolutely packed. So there's, there's a real sense of it as a community hub. And I sort of wanted to choose a library like this rather than an academic library because writing The Cutout Girl was a kind of move away from purely academic libraries. I mean, I worked a lot in academic libraries, but also worked quite a lot in local libraries like this, mainly across the Netherlands. And Kate, Bart mentions his event here. I understand that, again, it's a uh, community library and the Friends of Summertown Library raised £85,000 pounds That's correct. to refurbish the library. Absolutely. And we won't get into the whys and wherefores of funding for libraries and why that should be necessary, but it's a remarkable feat and it's fantastic and shows the love they have for the library and the importance of it in the community. Can you explain and just give us some background on the place a bit more? Sure. There's a network of 43 libraries across Oxfordshire as a county and going back to 2011, 2012, so post-austerity, the cuts were really starting to come in for all local governments that difficult decisions need to be taken. And like many, some of the proposals were to close some of the more smaller local libraries. And what was amazing is the the heartfelt response that came from the communities to say, no, these are really, really important spaces and we need to maintain them. Mm. And so what we have now, several years down the line, is a network of what we call core libraries. So the main part of what is a, a legislative offer from the council, but also a number of community supported libraries where we have friends groups and we have 22 friends groups who support their libraries either through 
volunteer hours, fundraising, and that those have become much more community spaces where the community are able to have so much more of a say in what takes place in their space. And I think it's great. Yeah, and there are hundreds now of community libraries. I think there are over 500 in the UK. And, of course, it's not ideal, far from it, that there are also 50,000-plus volunteer librarians, and we're losing libraries and we're losing librarians, hence the podcast. But let's accentuate the positive and say, yes, it's a beautiful library and it's all power to this community for celebrating and keeping it going. It's fantastic, especially through events like getting Bart in to speak. Um, yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And I think libraries are more than just depositories for books, aren't they? I mean, they are cultural spaces. And we know came in this morning and there was something called rhyme time going on and sort of, you know, children singing. So the more I started writing The Cutout Girl and coming to places like this, the more I had actually a sense that this is really one of the very few spaces in which all members of a community come together and mm. Also, to connect it again to The Cutout Girl, I think that's one of the, the messages of the book is about how important connectedness is and the dangers that occur in societies if people no longer feel connected, if they just become these sort of atomized units, which I think there are, there are various sort of pressures in the world today creating, you know, largely centered on the internet. Yeah, actually, we need to get out and we, we need to meet people unlike ourselves. And, and libraries are a really important space for doing that. Absolutely. Could you explain a little bit more the provenance of the book then and for any listeners who haven't yet had the pleasure of reading it yeah so I'd always known that my grandparents had sheltered Jewish children during the second world war in the Netherlands so, so I am Dutch my parents are both Dutch but I grew up away from the Netherlands mainly I grew up abroad so it never been more than a quite cloudy memory and I was also aware that there had been this one girl who had stayed with them after the war, but that there'd been a row between her and the family sometime in the 1980s. I remember my mother crying about that. So it wasn't until 2014 that something kind of clicked inside me and I thought, I've got to investigate this. And my mother still had contact with Lean, though the rest of the Van Ness family had severed contact really quite strongly, it turned out, in 1988. And my mother said, you know, probably she won't want to contact you. She won't want to hear from the Vanesses, but I sent her an email and that led to my meeting her late in 2014. And she was quite cautious, but I said, I want to record your story in some way. And I planned to come there for half an hour. I ended up staying for 10 hours. And once she trusted me, which was actually very quickly, she started telling me her whole life story, which was a story that took us from the moment really when she was collected at her doorstep in The Hague in the Netherlands in 1933, when her parents had to give her away in the hope that she could survive the Holocaust when they had had their deportation order to be sent to Poland. It takes us from that moment to this wonderful, vibrant person that I actually met in 2014, who had modern art on the walls, who had cultural supplements and who told me, you know, straight off, without families, you don't have stories, mm. which, you know, as soon as I heard that, I think that started setting off a whole series of chain connections for me. And they became the heart of the book, I suppose. So did you know during the, those first 10 hours, because you ended up talking for 40... Yeah, I have 40 hours of recorded interviews. I mean, probably talked with her for more than that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So what happened was that, you know, that first day... But did you know right then that you had 
what obviously not the finish well, it, how it's ended up mm. the finished form but did you know wow this is turning into something obviously it's very quite viscerally personal for you yeah and has all sorts of impacts on your family relationships outside of Lynn, but were you aware, thinking crumbs? This is a, a lot bigger. I'm on. T- I have something here that is far more special and major. Well, I went with almost no plan at all. So you know, as I say in the book, I didn't have any notes. I didn't have even paper or a pen. When she started telling me about her life, we very quickly developed this pattern where I would just ask her everything. You know, what what was your room like when you were a child? What did you wear? What did you eat? And that sparked in her a set of memories that also meant that she started finding physical artefacts that she hadn't looked at for 70 years. Things like a poetry album, which almost all Dutch girls used to keep, where where you ask people to write a little verse on one page and then put little cutouts facing it. So on that first day, I saw an incredible number of very moving things. The letter that her parents gave her to pass on to my grandparents, which she never read as a child, of course that cutout book or poem book, various letters. So immediately I was immersed into this world and I decided I had to investigate this further. So I put aside a month in January 2015 where I said, we'll do more interviews. And by then it was clear to me that actually she'd hidden not just with my grandparents, but at nine different addresses across the Netherlands over the course of the war. So my plan was then I would go and visit those places. I would find out what I could in archives, in libraries. And that then turned into this second thing, which is part of the book. It's really my journey of exploration, finding these places, talking to the people who now live in those houses, countering local libraries, you know, communities, and and kind of confronting the bigger story of, you know, the actually kind of very frightening level of collaboration that the Netherlands had during the war, which meant that 75% of Dutch Jews died in Auschwitz or Sobibor. Yeah, that was an astonishing discovery for me. My in-laws are Dutch. Yeah. And and I can appreciate also the Dutch straight-talking qualities that you and Lean and members of your family have, which probably filtered into some of those conversations, which also deeply painful i mean really the most yeah. uh, we're getting to the most painful sorts of memories and of course accepting the sort of slipstream of fact and fiction that memories imply but that straight talking quality probably uh, yeah. helped a bit along the way i hope i mean i think that's a quality that the dutch pride themselves on is straight talkingness but one of the things i kind of found out over the course of the book is that that is also something of a national myth the dutch me included have kind of grown up with a story of national resistance of everyone being against the Germans kind of everyone apart from a tiny minority being ideologically good during the war but what I ended up finding out was very shocking is just how little resistance there was in the Netherlands early on particularly when the Germans were winning and when there was no threat to the non-Jewish inhabitants of the Netherlands. And you, you find out these really shocking things, like you know, big Dutch construction firms were bidding to build the Atlantic Wall to, in inverted commas, defend the Netherlands from British liberation. And those were not forced labour people. Those were people trying to make as big a profit as they could out of the new realities of being part of this sort of larger Reich. And you kindly have agreed to read a small passage from the book. Yeah. And going back, that's one of the these initial moments early in the story, or mm. in the narrative, 
do you want to frame it and for the listeners? Yeah, so the way the book eventually turned out, it's really a, a, a book of three different kinds of voice. So one part of it is a kind of novelized voice from Lean's perspective. So first of all, as a little girl, and this section that I'll read is from her as a little girl and her experience of being collected at the door. There's also my voice as somebody traveling and investigating this and meeting Lean. And then thirdly, there's a kind of omniscient historical voice that tells us about things like, you know, the Dutch collaboration or the response to the Holocaust in 1945 in the Netherlands, which is also rather shocking. So, I'll, yeah, I'll read that a little bit if you like. Thank you. In the morning, soon after she has had her bread and cheese, there is a lady at the door, even grander than Mrs. Andreessen and not so old. She has a firm, jolly manner, like the nurse at the doctor's surgery, saying nice things about her and asking questions about her schoolwork and about what books she enjoys. Lean is embarrassed that she does not do much reading, though she remembers to say that she likes Jan Klasse and Katrain. The lady is quite young, but not at all like a mother. It is a real adventure to be going with her the kind of adventure that gives you a little feeling of sickness in your mouth. On the outside, she is excited, but on the inside, she feels calm. They are unstitching the stars from her dresses, the two women's fingers moving very fast. Lean can keep her own name and her surname, de Jong, but she must not say anything about mama or papa or family. She is not to be Jewish now, just a normal girl from Rotterdam whose parents have been killed in the bombing. If anyone asks, she must say that the lady is Mrs. Hirama and that she is taking her to her aunt who lives in Dordrecht, which is a different town. It is important to stay very close to the lady, hug tight into her body, so that nobody who knows her can see that Lean is not wearing her star. Mama says exactly the same things as the lady and gets her to repeat them, even though Lean feels she knows them already. Then a kiss with a hug that hurts a little and she is outside in the Pleteraestrat, walking fast in step with the lady, trying hard to keep herself pressed into her coat. The bag of her things, including her pussy album and Papa's puzzle, is over Mrs. Hiramar's shoulder and bangs its edge against her with every stride. It is not far from Lean's house to the station, so their walk through the streets and then through the park, where Jews are forbidden, to the Hollandspoor Railway, is over almost as soon as it starts. The station front looks like a palace, but there is no time to look at it because their train is about to depart. Lean thinks for a moment about her bedroom, close enough for her to run back. Mrs. Hirama talks to her about funny place names. There are lots in Holland, she says. For example, the Double Sausage Street in Amsterdam, the Moustache in Groningen, or Duxick Road in Zealand. There is also a road called Behind the Wild Pig. Lean thinks these names are funny. She likes Mrs. Hirama and giggles as they watch the houses of The Hague pass faster and faster through the window of the train compartment, the kachunk kachunk of the wheels on the railway growing louder and closer together. The smoke from the locomotive is dirty, but it smells clean. Does Lean know any funny place names? After a lot of thinking, she remembers Cow Thief Street which Mrs. Hirama had not known about. Cow Thief Street, that's a good one, Mrs. Hirama says. Lean is about to say, it's not far from our house, when she stops herself, just in time. Unlike The Hague, 
Dordrecht has only one railway station. It is also like a palace, only a bit smaller, without the princess towers of the station they left behind. They walk through another park, bigger than theirs at home and sleepy in the afternoon sunlight, then through streets with little houses, nothing at all like the three-storey apartment blocks of The Hague. Her legs are tired now, and it takes a bit longer each time to get to a new corner. But at each one, Mrs. Hiramar tells her the street name, and then a funny one from somewhere else in Holland. So Lean presses on. They reach the Mauritzweg, at which Mrs. Hiramar says, Trousers Street, then the Crispainseweg, Butter Mountain Street, and finally the Bilderdijkstraat, Rabbit Pipe Street, and they have arrived. All the houses that Lena's passed seemed little compared to the ones in The Hague. But these ones in the Bilderdijkstraat are the littlest of all. In fact, the street doesn't really look like it has houses. It just has two long, low red brick walls with doors and windows set in it, stretching as far as Lean can see. In the road, a group of boys is running and shouting. Mrs. Hiramar, ignoring the commotion, walks straight to the door of number 10 and knocks hard on the little round window pane. In her coat pocket, unbeknownst to Lean, there is a letter. It is written in the same steady hand that her mother used on the second page of the little girl's album. The letter, which still survives in Lean's apartment in Amsterdam, is dated August 1942. It reads as follows. Most honoured sir and madam, although you are unknown to me, I imagine you for myself as a man and a woman who will, as a father and mother, care for my only child. She has been taken from me by circumstance. May you, with the best will and wisdom, look after her. Imagine for yourself the parting between us. When shall we ever see her again? The 7th of September, she will be nine. I hope it will be a joyful day for her. I want to say to you that it is my wish that she will think only of you as her mother and father, and that, in the moments of sadness that will come to her, you will comfort her as such. If God wills it, we will all, after the war, shake one another by the hand in joyous reunion, directed to you, as the father and mother of Lintje. Thank you, Bart. I think I can hear in your voice the charge still. Yeah, yeah. After all your success and readings and prizes and etc., yeah. etc., et and writing and thinking and reading about this, there's still a charge in your voice at that letter. Yeah. And I totally can understand why, because it is so, so powerful. And that passage there, we have also the immediacy of your prose because you're writing with such precision and perhaps that's partly born out of your academic rigor but also you're recreating her memories as they must have been told to you which yeah. is in, a, in the present a revisionist act mm -hmm. so you're capturing them in the moment as memory works and yet then the letter comes and punches us in the gut but that's a fixed point and that's in the present tense too and yet it's sort of the start of this and there yeah. is, of course, a very different letter at the, towards the end of the book and towards the end of the timeline. But it's an astonishing feat in terms of your straddling those different sort of rhythms and timelines. Well, yeah, I, that, to start with your sense of my emotion, I mean, it, I read that letter for the first time on that first day. I met Lean on the 21st of December 2014. And as soon as I read that letter and heard about this farewell party that her parents organised for her, which she didn't realise was a farewell party, I mean, it haunted me 
completely. And it's never gone away. I've, I've never been able to read the set of letters that her parents were still able to send her or that letter without immediately feeling in the moment again. Because it's, it's just so immediate to you as a parent that you think you can't imagine that such a letter could have been written in living memory in quiet, neat Holland, particularly. This is not Syria or, you know, wherever, South America. So, you know, I had that total immersion into Lean's memory and the fact of seeing those documents. So, you know, I felt very determined to try and write something that would be true to that emotional experience. And I suppose I was drawing on, on multiple kinds of background that I have. So partly that of an archival research historian, which has been important to my written work, but also that of a kind of scholar of English literature who's sort of interested in what novels in particular can do in terms of sort of putting us in a place and giving us somebody's point of view. So it felt to me legitimate to turn the interview footage I had, which in, in that instance was incredibly detailed on what Lean remembered. So she remembers that Mrs. Hiramar told lots of jokes about place names, for example, that they went on the railway journey. But she didn't actually remember the specific jokes. So, you know, one way of telling it would be to say Mrs. Hiramar told jokes and then that's the end of it. But that seems to me sort of less true than actually if you invent the jokes, but give us a sense of the child's experience of something like that. And we as readers are able to kind of jump between a reality of knowing what will happen that's anchored in that letter and the total to the minute kind of consciousness of a little girl who, you know, is sort of unconscious or half conscious of this being something, you know, rather terrible. Yes, we can already in the extract see the abnegation or denial of who she is yeah. beginning as they walk. That journey is actually probably not very long, but it's huge yeah. in terms of the change in her identity being forced upon her and it's heartbreaking that we can hear children's voices as we always do in these libraries yeah. in the in the mix here in Oxford today yeah. but to feel that change in her being jollied along by the jokes and that you've provided those along the way to jolly her along even as this yeah. tragedy is unfolding that we can see and she can't are there literary references in terms of that immediacy and that splicing of fiction and non-fiction that memory demands in the ways that you've written this. For instance, this may be off-grid, but Knausgaard or those sorts of recent fictions mm. that straddle non-fiction as well, where the lines get very, very blurry. Were there any influences along the way in yeah. terms of the fictional? And how would you describe the book, in a, in a, not to pigeonhole it, but in a sort of, obviously there's history and mm. memoir, but in a generic sense, how would you describe what you've ended up producing? Uh, Knausgaard's not at all off-grid. I've devoured all six books of Knausgaard, and I was reading Knausgaard quite intensely while writing the book. I think that his is a very, very remarkable innovation in literary style because he, and he calls it, you know, kind of literary method acting to put yourself into a circumstance that you know happened, but of which you only remember fragmentary details. So, I mean, particularly book three of that series, Boyhood Island, where, where he's talking about his very young experiences. And, you know, he gives you at the beginning the experience of a child in a pram done with, in this brilliantly tactile way. And then he sort of pulls away after it and says, but I remember nothing of this. And it's this kind of bold statement saying, yes, this happened, but no one could ever narrate it accurately. So Knauskart was definitely an influence. Sebold was an influence more, I think, in terms of my voice in the book than in terms of how I was doing leans. 
And then structurally, I read Helen MacDonald's Hatches for Hawk, I think just before meeting Lean. And her sort of boldness of combining really three apparently incompatible stories, the story of T.H. White's yes. biography, her emotional crisis, and this kind of history of hawking. That made me sort of realise actually, you know, readers can put up with quite a lot. They don't need that much hand-holding. They don't need an absolute chronology. I believe that also won the Costa. It and did, it's a yeah. tribute to yeah. your book and hers that the Costa of all these prizes is given to the book that is the most enjoyable. And on the surface, hers and, you know, yours is, is dealing with some seriously heavy on-paper stuff. You know, it's a completely engrossing, gripping read. So that's a huge tribute to you and how you've executed it. In the extract, you mentioned books and you mentioned these sort of, the sort of artefacts. And of course, it ends on the letter. The book is something of a tapestry, not just in terms of the timelines and the various voices, etc., in the present, past, future tenses, but in a physical sense as well. And I have to pay tribute also to the fact that there are no maps in it, but there are plenty of photos, letters, etc. Could you speak a little bit about the, the process yeah. of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, one early title for it was The Scrapbook, because, you know, Lean's Pussy album is a kind of scrapbook, and the book itself is a kind of patchwork of memories and physical artifacts and times and the title as it is now the cutout girl is also a reference to that pussy album which has these little cutouts of girls in crinolines usually or flower arrangements facing these poems and that became for me a kind of metaphor for lean's experience of being kind of pasted from one family into another from one world into another i was particularly during that month in January, very aware of the way that memory is, you know, fragmentary and anchored in physical objects. What really shocked me actually over the course of that month in January was how there were these kind of huge gaps in Lean's memory. I started out with this total immersion way of experiencing her life. So, you know, that journey to the Vanesses that she has in 42 is, is very vivid to her, her early life with the Vanessas and she quickly became sort of entirely a part of that family. You know, that was really clear to her. But then as she suffered more trauma over the course of the war, there was a police raid on the house that she very narrowly escaped. Her memory starts to become much more patchy. And she sort of says things like, you know, well, I, I don't remember what the house looked like. She didn't remember any of the names of people in a house where she was for nine months in hiding. And you could see that is clearly a product of childhood trauma. Yes. And that gave a kind of skeleton. But then in one case, I went to a house where she'd been hiding. And, you know, this was totally revelatory because the, the woman there said, oh, you ought to speak to the neighbor. You know, he was born just after the war. And I said, well, there's really no connection. I was kind of reluctant. But it was only because she was standing in the doorway that I said, well, I'll, I'll go and knock on the door. This man, when he came out from his garden, looking actually sort of very aggressive and sort of saying, you know, what are you doing here? And I said, well, my aunt was in hiding next door. And he said, Linche, she's the reason that I was born. And suddenly this whole other story opened up and it turned out that Lean had hidden in that house as well. And, you know, it stayed with his sister and his sister had these incredibly vibrant memories of her. And Lean didn't remember that house at all. Wow. And it was like, wow, okay, there are just enormous gaps here. That, so, moment, yeah. that moment for you must have been, again... 
yeah. quite something. Yeah, because I went and interviewed that old lady in an old people's home and, you know, she just said, oh, you know, we used to laugh upstairs in bed together. And she described the journey that they had from Benacom, which is where they were, to Ada in after the Allied landings. By the way, I yeah. meant as a tribute, yeah. there, there are no maps. Of course, it, yes, feels like, yeah. it feels like you're getting off onto the wrong foot with a book when you open up and there's loads of maps at the front. It's a bit daunting. And it's a tribute to your ability to paint pictures of the, these places for us and anchor the book in terms of locations that you don't need them. And it's very, very yeah. vivid. But of in course, fact, I actually really didn't want maps or family trees because I thought that would give us a misleading perspective on Lean's life. So none of the photographs are labelled either, because I think if you have that kind of book, then, you know, you inevitably skip ahead. You refer back to, you know, the table of contents, you look at a timeline. And I wanted to do something that would be about the experience of being transplanted and lost. And that would have been impossible with maps and timelines. Lean still today actually has an incredibly poor sense of chronology. And she says herself, this is one of the sort of legacies she has from having been a, a hidden child. She can never remember years when things happened. Is she grateful to you for allowing her that chronology towards the end of her life? Or is this a mixed blessing for her? It's certainly not a mixed blessing. And she has described it as an enrichment of her life. She wasn't looking out to record her story at all. So it wasn't the sense that, oh, finally, here is someone I can hand this over to. You know, she was pretty reluctant to talk to me when we first met. And then when she trusted me, she said, you know, it's history for me. I can talk about it without emotion. And, you know, of course, she doesn't talk about it entirely without emotion. But what the book actually ends up recording is her recovery, not just from the experiences directly during the war, but from the whole of her sort of traumatic afterlife as a survivor. So that eventually in 2003, Lean was able to travel to Auschwitz and read out the names of her family. And she sort of says, you know, that was an end point for me. And that, that yeah. shines through in the book and it yeah. ends on a, on a note of love and yeah. an uplifting Place. So she's very happy that the book is there and it's been important for her family. But I think she hasn't needed it psychologically. It, it wasn't like it was a therapy session. No. She had done the therapy herself. So it was never actually traumatic interviewing her. You know, even the terrible things that she described, she was really just concerned with getting them as accurate as she could. It wasn't as though she was suddenly, you know, back in those rooms where she'd been hidden. So that's a big burden or responsibility, obviously, for you to get it as accurate as you can. And we've talked about the methods that you used. You have these fixed points as best you can in terms of memory, as we said, is provisionary or recollection is a sort of revisionist act, whether you like it or not. Yeah. But you've got these fixed points and those sort of document really documentary fixed points, letters, photos, etc. But can you explain the process vis-a-vis -vis libraries as well mm. and drawing upon your obvious pretty significant expertise in, in research, how that went in Holland and, and finding, joining these dots? Yeah. I had a very strong sense of responsibility, both to Lean's memory and to history. I mean, if you're dealing with something like the Holocaust, there could be nothing worse than making some error where whatever you you know say that a certain type of clothing was available or a certain type of food and that someone can suddenly say oh this is all fake news so I wanted to be absolutely certain that everything 
that I wrote in the book could have happened and that it had happened to somebody. You know, I started out really with those interviews with Lean, but then as I went to those places, I would also go to the resources that were around there to get a wider picture. So it started in The Hague. So right at the beginning of the interviews with Lean, I went to the house where she was collected, which was now a physiotherapy gym, and walked around there. But I also went to the Hague City Library, which is, you know, a bigger version of Summertown Library, really. I mean, lots of kids doing their homework there, and there's a big section on local history. So, you know, you could get things like construction histories of The Hague. I could work out when those houses were built, lots of details about street life there, the percentage of Jews on the street, all of those kind of facts around the history, photographs. And I did that everywhere. So when I went to Dordrecht, which is the town she moved to, again, I spent a lot of time in Dordrecht City Library. There was that kind of local history, which, you know, fundamentally, I'm, you know, such a supporter of physical books. I'm kind of frightened by the way in which the current generation, to sort of sound a bit fogeyish, is so ready to trust the internet. I find that with my own students at Oxford now, that they just have an idea that you get facts by putting it into a search box. And actually, that's not really... You're always getting something at several removes and there's no anchor for it. You know, Whereas actually, even a very you know, 1950s old history of the building of Dordrecht or something, you know, it's concrete. You have to flick through it. You have to read sections. You have to think who wrote this and when. So I spent a lot of time in local libraries. Also, after that month in January 2015, you know, I went back to do things. Then I did more kind of scholarly archival work. So, you know, I got access to the prosecution documents against Dutch policemen after the war. So I spent a lot of time working in the National Archives. I worked in the National Centre for Holocaust Studies in Amsterdam. I worked a lot in Leiden University Library and various other kind of institutional archives. So that's a different kind of thing to what a local library is. I was using academic libraries, I was using archives. But a lot of that period detail actually comes from small local libraries, where there'll often be a you know, general history society or something which produces these little kind of paper pamphlets, as they did, for example, in Benacom, the town where Lean ended up at the end of the war. You just wouldn't get that kind of thing with online searches. So, yeah, again, I mean, it's, it's just such a sense of how these places matter. And I am fighting, you know, the good fight, as it were, to sort of stop students and kids thinking that you are really doing research if you're looking at stuff on a screen. You actually do have to see that the books exist and who has put those books out there. Because otherwise it's, you know, potentially just this miasma of, mm. you know, other people's versions of the truth. I imagine that must sometimes be quite a tough battle and the book does obviously have immense currency and urgency as well current at the moment and of course you mentioned the dread term fake news but of course the forces that are at work in the book are bubbling away again sadly in our societies and these libraries in a book that's about remembering and the importance of remembering and how we remember Your description of how you went about stitching it together is testimony to the importance of libraries in that conversation. Kate, do you want to talk a little bit about Oxford and the local resources and, again, how these archival faculties are 
protected and resourced here in in these communities? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We have a number of, as Bart was describing, local studies sections within libraries where people can come and learn about the history of their area and their heritage, but also come in and contribute to help others. And I think that's another really, really important facet of public libraries is that people can come with a question and hopefully find the answer, whether it's in the content of a book or whether it's in coming together and finding out from others who may be able to point them in the right direction. I think in terms of where we want to take our library services, our cultural services locally, is for that to be ever-growing and for it to take on, Bart may may come in on this, but to take on both a physical and a digital element so that people can start to share their story so that you're continuing to grow that history and that legacy. Different but similar in some ways, this county is going to grow, so we'll have a third more people living in the county in 10 years' time. So these are people who aren't here yet. But when they arrive, they'll have their own stories, their own heritage and history. And how do we start to bring this together to feel more like a community? And I think libraries have a really, really important part to play in making those inquiries and asking people questions, particularly in the context, as you say, of this evil spectre that does unfortunately bubble up throughout history and one of the fundamental things that it tends to do is it erases people's stories and that's kind of what makes us human and so giving people that voice so that they can share and that we you know that the history of a place the heritage it evolves because it's made up of the people yes and it's terrifying frankly to think that there would be a lean out there because there are this is but one story Mm. clearly in an ocean of stories from that period. But it's terrifying to think that you would not have the resource, potentially resources, to access that story or tell the narrative that you have so meticulously produced. Yeah, in this case, it is also about people. So when I went to Dordrecht on the first day, the, the place I went to was you know, a local history museum, which is called kind of Museum 1940 to 1945, the, the war really starting in 1940 in the Netherlands. And, you know, that's partly a library, partly a repository of lots of local artefacts, but it's probably most fundamentally a community. So, you know, there I ended up browsing the library and this man who was one of countless volunteers there said, oh, you know, what are you looking for? And I showed him the photographs of the documents I had. And then he said, oh, Mrs. Hirama, yeah, I think I've heard about her. You ought to speak to this local journalist who helps out the museum and immediately this set of guys there started helping me they were a kind of club really you know they were all volunteers doing this work slightly troublingly I was also the only visitor to the museum so you know I think those places are important Mm. and you know there's a kind of danger that people think oh I can do it all online but really people need to come into that space they need to talk to people like that who are you know passionately immersed in history and you know, doing that vital work of archiving and also discussing and connecting. And this is, again, why it's so scary that last year 130 public libraries closed in the UK. However, we're here to, <laughs> to be positive. Yeah. Um, no, and I mean, it is a challenge because I think reading, it's not inevitable that it continues. I find English students now are far less habituated to reading than they were 10 years ago. I mean, even English students at Oxford. When I was a kid, most of my leisure time 
was reading. Were really. you at the library as a kid much? Was there a library or a bookshop that you sort of think back and has a special resonance? Yeah, I mean, I lived a very privileged life. So I lived abroad until my teenage years and we, we sort of lived this quite strange expat existence that I think doesn't really exist anymore where, where you'd sort of move as a camp of people into a different country. So we lived in Norway with a set of Dutch people, in Dubai with a set of Dutch people, then Indonesia. So there weren't really libraries in those places. But then another element of privilege, I went to you know, a pretty posh school in Sussex. And you know, one of the things that posh schools have is libraries. And it was there that I really fell in love with serious literature. You know, I had an English teacher who said, you know, you ought to read Hamlet. I devoured Hamlet, started reading my way through all of Shakespeare, you know, started falling in love with Victorian novels. And they were all just there. So I never even kind of thought of this as a threatened resource and I certainly used my local library in the holidays as well and spent quite a lot of time there yeah I don't think it's kind of inevitable that that passion will exist I mean I I see it in my own children that they're you know it's very difficult to resist the temptation of the phone not to have those messages coming up and the kind of habituation to that ability to be absorbed in something and not doing anything else that I'm very keen to try and preserve do you have a big personal library? I mean, you must, again, you've written very eminent scholarly works on Shakespeare and re- Renaissance literature. I mean, how extensive is your own library? And if I may ask, how do you organise it? Oh, yeah. In a not, not in a nosy way, but in a podcast about libraries, I'm always curious. Yeah, no, I mean, of course I have a lot of books. Academics have a lot of books. And I am obsessively organised about my alphabetised books. Uh, that. Uh, <laughs> I'm not really a romantic about books. Do you break the spine? Does that mean you're not you don't treat them as dainty objects or you Yeah, I mean if I have a genuinely beautiful hardback, I will treat it with respect, but I'm pretty happy to use paperbacks most of the time. And you know, I have a lot of colleagues who are just enormous bibliophiles and who get very passionate about seeing the original printed edition of something, and that's actually never been something that's particularly been powerful for me. I'm more interested in the content. So my use of books is, in a way, quite pragmatic. I want them alphabetized with lots of stickies in so that I can have them. And I'm even quite willing to use e-readers if I'm traveling and things. So I'm not so fetishistic about the object of the book, though I prefer reading from a physical book. Although I would say, and I'm a little old-fashioned about the tactile bookness of it yeah. you know I'm not a big personally an ebook reader although I have no problem with them but your book in particular I feel is a very tactile book yeah. and I think I would have lost a measure of value or enjoyment satisfaction whatever if I'd read it as an ebook personally but that's perhaps me being a little yeah. I mean, books I, that are important to me I almost invariably have as both ebook and physical book all the canal scarts I have on my phone because I sort of travel quite a lot and then so I find that thing of just reading on my phone quite easy but yeah, if I'm at home, I would prefer to have the book, but they're pretty bulky things to carry around. Of course. And Kate, are you very regimented and organised in your sadly, shelving? Sadly, <laughs> certainly not alphabetised. No, no, no. People come into my office, they're always shocked because there's not a surface with a book on it. And when I'm having a tutorial, loads of books come off the shelf and I yeah. sort of sit there and you know show people things. But at the end of a set of tutorials, my office will usually be covered in books that are you know, splayed on the floor or have things in them, but then I go and put them all daintily back in their slots because otherwise I won't find them again. Yeah, I like to ask, not just because it's a library-related podcast, but also because it is a nice window or 
snapshot of someone's personality, how they choose to, if they're a bookish soul, you know, how they choose to organize them. Yeah. And I think, Bart, if you're happy to, it would be lovely if you were to choose a book from the library to celebrate Summertown Library, but also the serendipitous experience of libraries and the magical alchemy of, of coming into I know you you probably have a stack of reading that you you're always doing and referring to but it could be an old favorite or something you've been meaning to read or anything you like that's sort of the beauty of walking into a place like this if you'd be up for that I'm up for it yeah great thank you both thank you Kate thank you but thanks So we're in fiction. Is that a deliberate direction? No, I don't really have any sense of what I'm up to at the moment, but I tend to read classic fiction more than I read contemporary fiction, unless I suddenly feel that something is really major, as I felt with The Canal Scout. Right. Uh, or I've also absolutely adored the Ferrante books in a, right. in a different way. Uh, but that sort of immersiveness in historical period, I find... Have you read Fascinating. Cusk, Rachel Cusk? No, is that in would terms that be of here? Canal Scarred of it. Uh, yeah, because I, if, if there was a section that would be kind of creative non-fiction, I might go there. Ah, oh, fantastic. Outline, Rachel Cusk, this is a good... Another in that zone of... Right, yeah, writing. this would definitely be the, the book then that I'd pull out. Um, so as with all books, you immediately read the cover... And it says, like the Higgs boson, which appears only when bombarded by electrons, Rachel Cusk's nearly nameless narrator flickers into visibility only through her encounters with a series of amazingly eloquent and fascinating interlocutors. So, yeah, I will definitely be taking this one out. Beautiful sort of simple things. I like, I like the chapter headings just to have Roman numerals and very little sense of what you're going to get. It's such a kind of unexplored thing. And we see Habermas and Gretos Bar and Penelope, all sorts of exciting things as I flick through. So I'll definitely be taking this to the desk. Great. Thank you. No, ben, job that's done. A, that's a great recommendation. Superb. Thanks for listening to Ex Libris. If you've enjoyed this episode, please rate, review and subscribe wherever you get your brain food. If you'd like the chance of winning a signed copy of Bart's majestic book, The Cutout Girl, then all you have to do is write a thoughtful review of the podcast, mentioning this episode. To find out more about the authors and venues, as well as more on libraries and bookshops, including loads of great images so you can put places and faces to names, please visit our website, www.exlibrispodcast.com. You can also get such updates from me on Twitter and Instagram. Find me at thatbenholden. Ex Libris is produced by Chris Sharp and myself. Its music is composed by Adam Pleath. Ex Libris is brought to you in association with the Lightbulb Trust, which illuminates lives via literacy and learning, providing opportunities to shine. <laughs>